Imagine waking up every morning and starting your day by anticipating all of the encounters you expect to have so that you can translate them ahead of time from the language you know best into a language that the people around you will understand. If you're not fluent in the language that everybody else takes for granted, you have to take that extra step in order to live in their world. Who will you meet today? Will you be ready to speak with them? Will they understand your intentions, your clients, your coworkers, your boss, your teachers, your bus drivers, your friends, the person in the drive-through at Starbucks, cashier at the grocery store, the doctor in the emergency room, or the police officer who pulls you over, if you don't inhabit the same cultural circle that everybody else around you does, you have to translate to some degree or another every encounter to be sure that the people you're with understand you and you understand them. Once, at a train station in Catalonia, I spent a whole five minutes trying to recall enough of what I had learned in high school Spanish class in order to ask the station attendant whether the luggage lockers, which advertised a particular price for 24 hours, whether when the 24 hours were up, were up the doors would just spring open by themselves. I was pretty impressed at how well the question rolled off my tongue without too much difficulty, but I was in no way prepared to understand or respond to what the attendant said back to me in Spanish. Recalling the vocabulary and grammar of a language is a very different thing from knowing a language because in order to know a language, you've got to know a people their stories, their culture, their nuance, their inflection, all of the unspoken things that hold a people together. When the day of Pentecost had come, the disciples were all together in one place, waiting and watching and praying for the Holy Spirit. Before Jesus had ascended into heaven, he had told those disciples to wait. Wait in Jerusalem. Wait for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will come upon you with power. But that's pretty much all Jesus said to them. He told them that the Spirit would make them witnesses to him in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But given how little Jesus explained ahead of time, surely the disciples could not have anticipated what would happen when the Holy Spirit showed up. It came to them like an untamable wind. With a violent rush, it filled the whole house where the disciples had gathered. Then divided tongues as of fire came down from heaven and alighted on each of them, wind and fire. Symbols of God's awesome presence and power. Symbols as old, as ancient, as God's relationship with God's people. But when that violent rush was over, 
Instead of the disciples wielding the power of God in ways that enabled them to triumph over anyone who dared to stand in their way or to take center stage in the courts of power, no, instead, when the disciples tapped into that power that the Spirit had given them, what do they do? They opened their mouths and began to tell the familiar stories of God's salvation, but instead in all the languages under heaven. And that was enough to confuse the crowd that had gathered. Aren't all of these men Galileans, they said to one another? How is it then that we hear, each of us hear, in our own native language, what they're saying? How is it that we, who have come from all over the globe, can hear these simple tradesmen proclaiming these familiar stories of God, but speaking them in a language that we've known since our birth? You may have noticed in the reading of Acts that even though this crowd comes from all over, all the people who have gathered were Jewish. Luke, who is the author of the Acts of the Apostles, Luke lists that long list of countries and regions where the people had hailed from, and yet at the end he says all of them are both Jews and proselytes. Proselytes, another word for converts, converts who were both Cretans and Arabs. Everybody there that day was Jewish, either by birth or by conversion. Pentecost, after all, 50 days, was a Jewish festival. 50 days after Passover, the Feast of Weeks, it was time for Jews to gather again to celebrate the stories of God's deliverance in the wilderness. But it's easy for us, at least those of us who've grown up hearing this story in a language we take for granted, it's easy for us to forget that those people who had come from all over to celebrate the stories of God's salvation, that they would have expected to hear those stories proclaimed in a language that wasn't really their own. The official language of God's people, Hebrew, sometimes a little Aramaic thrown in, but a language that belonged in the temple, even if it didn't really belong more or less in their homes. Because whenever somebody who was born out there in the diaspora, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Libya, or Egypt, wherever it was, when they traveled to Jerusalem to worship God, they would have to translate their prayers from the language they knew best into the language of the temple. And if they wanted to share in the celebration of all of God's people, they would need to reimagine to some degree these great stories that they knew but reimagine them from the Hebrew in which those stories were told into the language and culture and nuance that they had always known. So imagine, imagine coming to the capital city of your religion, the spiritual home of your people. Imagine showing up ready to translate all that you will do, all of your religious business into that language that you've been taught is the only language that God will accept. But when you get there, you discover that this strange, ragtag group of barely literate men from way out in the countryside, there they are in the middle of the city, proclaiming the same familiar stories you've always heard, but proclaiming them in the same language that your mother used back when she sung you to sleep. What would that tell you about what God is trying to do in this moment? What would that show you about who our God really is? 
this phenomenon was so incredible, so unbelievable, that some in the crowd had to appeal to the consequences of alcohol in order to make sense of it. These men are drunk, they said. They've had too much new wine. Though admittedly, that explanation doesn't really work all that well either. What strange, unexpected thing was God doing in this moment? Well, Peter stood alongside the other disciples and began to interpret, began to make sense of this spirit thing. This is what was spoken through the prophet Joel, he declared. When God said in the last days, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your little ones will see visions and your old folk will dream dreams. Even upon my slaves, no matter what their gender, I shall pour out my spirit because all of my people will prophesy. Long before this Pentecost day, hundreds of years earlier, God had promised through the prophet Joel that a time would come when God's spirit would be active not only among the official, institutionally authorized prophets, but among all types of people, male and female, rich and poor, slave and free, young and old. In those last days, Joel tells us, there will be no limit on whom God will pour God's spirit into. And those last days would be a sign for us that the end was near, that all of God's promises were coming complete, that God was preparing to rescue all of God's people and bring them back together into one, all those people that for generations had been scattered to the ends of the earth. Peter and the other disciples, who knew nothing more than that they should wait in Jerusalem, they looked around and saw what was happening and knew that this was it. This is the moment that God's people had been waiting for, the moment when the last days were beginning to unfold. This was the sign that God was bringing all things to their fulfillment, this salvation that had been accomplished in the death and resurrection of Jesus would now take hold among God's people because of this radical, spirit-enabled proclamation that knew no ethnic or linguistic limits. But this thing that God was doing was more than translation. Instead of God's people having to work their way back to God, God was prepared to meet them wherever they were, not only by inhabiting the language they knew best, but by coming into every aspect of their lives, every story, every celebration, every prayer, every joke, every nuance. God could breathe new saving life into all of it. Nothing was off limits anymore. That is the power of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. No more translation, no more cultural adaptation is needed to understand God. God had always promised to bring God's people back together again, and now God was doing that. But what was so amazing to all who gathered 
is that God was bringing the people back together not by imposing upon them a mandated uniformity, but by offering them true intimacy, an intimacy that ties all people together. And eventually that same spirit that had now reached God's people throughout the world would broaden that reach even further, bringing Gentiles into this newly reconstituted covenant people of God. Surely the disciples couldn't have imagined what the Holy Spirit would do when it showed up that day. But should it surprise us that the God whose Son died on our behalf would seek that kind of intimacy with the world, the kind of intimacy that meets us even though we're scattered to the wind? Should we be surprised that the way that God brings God's people back together is by coming out to them, to all of them, in order that they might know God's saving love as intimately as their own mama's voice? The good news of God that we proclaim today is that you don't have to become someone else in order to find God. No matter who you are, God has come to you to know you and to love you and to save you. Thanks be to God. Amen.